it's fair to say that while the left has generally focused on the future and the world to come, the right has had its eyes fixed on the past. This can manifest itself as nostalgia with no basis in historic reality or simply a refusal to accept things have changed. Yet it also signifies a veneration for things which do seem important to the human condition, a sense of continuity between generations, a shared inheritance we all enjoy, and ideas of meaning and worth which transcend the span of a single lifetime. It's easy to succumb to convenient binaries with calls for people to get with the times or, equally, to not fetishise the new and confuse what is novel for what is important. But what if the right way to think about progressive commitments is to accept the importance of both? What if acting in meaningful solidarity with others should not only extend to those around us in the present, our family, friends, colleagues and fellow humans, but those in the future too, the unborn generations to come? If images of the future are indeed the most powerful socialising agent in Western culture, which certainly seems correct, then should such images also include an understanding of how we will be remembered? And is it only with that in mind that we can be truly moral agents and solve the great challenges of the 21st century? That's the hypothesis of Roman Krasnarek, author of The Good Ancestor, a radical prescription for long-term thinking. Before we go any further with this conversation, I'd like to draw the attention of our audience to the ongoing Navarra Media fundraiser. That started a month ago when we had around 6,000 supporters. The ambition was to grow to 10,000 supporters. Right now we have 9,000, so we're almost there. And we are so grateful, of course, to everyone who supports our work, but particularly those who've joined in the last several weeks, the last month. We want to really grow over the next several months, years, doing more podcasts, videos, articles, and that can only happen with your help. If you've not joined already, we're not asking for much. We know there's a cost of living crisis, so support our work from just one pound a month, whatever you can afford, we really appreciate. If that sounds good to you, if you're on board, go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Help us build that new media for a different politics. Roman, how are you? I am alive and well, as far as I know. Thanks. How's the last couple of months been for you since we've come out of COVID? Have you been able to think about the books we're going to discuss more clearly? Have you noticed any long-term changes? Well, one of the things I've been watching, actually, in the last few months is the rise of all these legal cases about the rights of future generations. So um, coming out of the post-COVID period, looking at where's the political energy going, and I found that really interesting. Um, but otherwise, I'm just adjusting to life seeing human beings again and trying to talk about some of the ideas of my recent book, The Good Ancestor, to actual human beings. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's such a pleasure seeing people again. So about your book, you write about how the future has been colonised and that the appropriate response is to be, quote, good ancestors. That's the title of your book. What exactly do you mean by the future being colonised and why is being a good ancestor the appropriate response? So I ummed and ahed about this metaphor of colonizing the future for a long time because it's clearly one that's associated today with decolonial struggles around racial justice and racial injustice. Um, but the conclusion I came to actually is that it's potentially powerful way of thinking about our relationship with the future. I mean, I'm born and bred in Australia, which of course has a history of colonialism and in the 18th and 19th century, the, when the British colonized, they drew on a legal doctrine today known as terra nullius, the idea that the continent was an empty place, that there were no indigenous people there. Of course, there were. And those struggles against terra nullius and for indigenous land rights are still going on. But I think they're now joined, I think, at a global level by a struggle not against terra nullius, but against tempus nullius, the idea that the future has no people in it, that it's uninhabited. And so the idea of colonizing the future tries to represent the idea that we are using the future as a dumping ground mm -hmm. for ecological degradation and technological risk as if there was nobody there. Right? And of course, there are the billions upon billions of people who are inhabit or hopefully inhabit the future who will be there. And the tragedy is that those future generations 
aren't here to do anything about the pillaging of their inheritance, right? You know, they can't leap in front of the king's horse like a suffragette. They can't go on a salt march to defy their colonial oppressors like Gandhi. They can't stage a sit-in like a civil rights activist. And in a way, that puts a, an extra burden on social activists today to try and engage in a struggle against that colonization uh, of the future. And in doing that, I think we need a new language to help us connect with that future. And that's what the idea of being a good ancestor is all about. It's not my phrase. I first came across the, uh, the question, are we being good ancestors in the writings of the immunologist Jonas Salk, who developed the first polio vaccine in the 50s. But in later life, he said, are we being good ancestors is the great question of our time. And I imagine he probably got that from that phrase, good ancestor from indigenous cultures as well. It, embodying some sense of ecological stewardship and how we're going to be judged by the generations of tomorrow. Do you think the modern mind is sort of uniquely ill-placed to think of of the long term? Um, you talk about this um, primacy of the now and, and our obsession with the world immediately surrounding us. Um, and of course, people do think in the future, they think of their own personal long-term projects, but it's, I think it's very accurate to say we don't think about that on a civilizational scale. Is that a recent phenomenon? I think it's easy to jump to the conclusion that, oh, the problem is our phones. You know, we're looking at our phones 173 times a day or whatever it is, and they have, they're drawing us and digital technology is drawing us into a permanent present tense. Um, and our attention is being stolen by the big corporations who are selling us their ads through algorithms and so on. And there's a truth to all of that. But in fact, the short-termism of contemporary culture has deep roots, I think. I think it goes back at least to early medieval Europe and the invention of the mechanical clock. I mean, the first clocks used to chime uh, maybe once an hour or every 15 minutes, but by 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, had second hands. And as you know, you know, the clock became the, the key machine of the Industrial Revolution, you know, keeping that assembly line moving faster and faster and faster. And as that was happening, well, the future was diminishing faster and faster and faster. It was pushing the industrial working classes into the present tense, um, driven by profit, driven by Henry Ford and that assembly line in, in, in Michigan in 1913, the first one set up. And of course, we've gone on since then. Uh, slicing time into smaller and smaller pieces. Now we've got the nanosecond speed share trading um, of the stock markets and so on. So I think that we need to always take the big historical view here, um, going back to the invention of the clock and also to the invention of our economic and political systems as a whole. I mean, we know our politicians can barely see beyond the next election or even the latest tweet. Well, where does that go back to? It goes back to the invention of representative democracy in the 18th and 19th century. You know, we know that neoliberal capitalism is caught in the present tense as well. You know, that it doesn't take a long view of, say, ecological destruction, for example. And that is a system rooted, well, depends how you look at human history, maybe goes back to the invention of the first stock exchange in Amsterdam in 1610. I don't know. What do you think about this, Aaron? What's your view? Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I mean, I should say that, but I, I love the book. How you situate technology within this conversation quite early on, again, I, I really really resonates with me so you know just for our audience who might think oh, it's a bit strange to say that the clock is the center of all of this rather than the steam engine i mean we think of the steam engine as the paradigmatic technology of the industrial revolution and it sort of is particularly from a particularly from the, uh, the sort of uh, perspective of uh, co2 emissions but you're right to i think go further back and i what i find curious about that is with the Lewis Mumford kind of, you know, the techniques of civilizational modernity start with the clock, is about unintended sort of consequences, right? Because this is started by monastic orders to pray better and actually, and to observe, you know, the existence of God in more in more pious ways. And then very quickly, within a couple of centuries, it, come, it becomes about something completely different. And I think that's a really useful lesson about, yeah, unintended consequences in technology. But it, it's it's rare to sort of situate that within a longer term critique. I mean, I'm I'm interested in how many people have sort of pushed back on that and said, "Oh, this is rubbish. How can you say this goes back, or this started? Doesn't go back. It started six, seven hundred years ago." I mean, when I talk about that, as I do sometimes to politicians or activists or 
kids or whoever's listening, they do think it's kind of odd because we're not taught to think about who we are in that way. We aren't taught to think that we are the inheritors of hundreds, thousands of years of history, which still lives in us. I mean, just think about the way we talk about love, right? Well, we we have this idea that there's a perfect soulmate out there for us. Well, that's a cultural invention. It goes back to the invention of romantic love in the 18th century. And equally, our concepts of time are invented as well. I once wrote a book many years ago called The Wonder Box, Curious Histories of How to Live. And it's little epigraph is from Goethe, who said that he who cannot draw on 3,000 years is living from hand to mouth. And it was a book about what we can learn about everyday life, love, death, work, and time, and so on, from history. Um, so I haven't had explicit pushback, more sort of a little bit of bemusement now and then, but I think people kind of get it. But then, of course, the challenge is that if you say to people, well, all these problems of short-termism go back to the origins of the clock, the monastic clock in the 13th, 14th century. They say, well, what can we do about that then? You know, that history is almost too heavy, too dense, too much. But the way I think about it is that when you realize that these things are constructed and the way we think even about time is constructed socially, politically, culturally, then, well, we know we can undo that. It's not purely natural. Actually, if you look at the neuroscience of temporal thinking about our, the human capacity to think short-term or long-term, well, in fact, humans are the experts of the temporal pirouette. Our minds can leap from one moment looking at our phones and the next moment thinking about the song list you want for your funeral, right? We have a capacity to think long-term, which most other mammals don't have. A chimpanzee thinks ahead a bit. They'll get a stick, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke in a termite hole, but they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. That's what we do. That's how we built the Great Wall of China and the cathedrals of medieval Europe and voyaged into space by having a long-term vision using what I call the acorn brain as opposed to our short-term marshmallow brain. And so I think what the history does, it helps liberate us to see the acorn brain potential in our minds, let's say. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, I don't think about pedagogy much or sort of education, but preparing for this interview, it did, it did make me think, you know, what we classify as history and what we teach kids as history. You know, every kid in the UK knows 1066, the Battle of Hastings, the invasion of the Normans. If you said, how old was the planet? Or when did we first see organisms capable of photosynthesis? Or how old are Homo sapiens? Or when was the first city? Which are all clearly far more important than the Battle of Hastings, right? Clearly. Um, then I think we'd have a quite a different understanding of, of both history and ourselves. But instead, we talk about Henry VIII and his wives. And this is crap. Nobody cares, right? In 100,000 years' time, nobody will care. But they will be looking at the fossil record about our carbon emissions and about, you know, how we built our cities and so on. And yeah, of course they'll care. And so I suppose, yeah, that the very notion of what we understand as history, which we learn from, you know, six years old or whatever, probably requires revisiting. Is that is that something when you talk to politicians? I mean, what do they say about that? I mean, in the big picture, I agree with you and I disagree with you. I mean, I agree in the sense that we should be teaching primary school kids about deep history or big history, about those expanses of time, about geology and astronomy and our long evolutionary heritage. I absolutely believe you're right. And I'd like to teach our politicians that too. <laughs> I think the problem though, is like there's this emerging field called big history, sponsored by Bill Gates and others. And which tries to do this on some level to recognize that human beings are just an eye blink in the cosmic story. And I think that that's important because it gives us a kind of humility, like who the hell are we in the last couple of hundred years to have wrought such ecological destruction uh, on the earth? You know, um, what right do we have to do that? Big history and deep history helps us grasp that. But I think one of the problems with it as the way it's often framed is that it's often devoid of people, right? It's all about the geology and the big lifespans and where are the social movements where are the disruptors where's the revolt so i agree that yeah we don't need to learn about henry the eighth right but there are certain things we need to learn about on the more micro scale so let's say about the fact that slavery 
the Slave Abolition Act of 1833 in Britain wasn't just a product of benign white parliamentarians like William Wilberforce, but actually came out of the Jamaica Slave Revolt of 1831. You know, And of course, that's an idea of history from below, which emerged in post-Second World War, social history and Marxist history and that kind of thing. And I think it's vital. So I think we kind of need to retain both of these parts because we're not going to be able to get the long-term change in institutions that we need politically, economically, culturally, unless we recognize, for example, the importance of um, cracking open the social order from below, for instance, that sort of micro-collective histories which have changed society. Yeah. No, I mean just to just to just to clarify, um, I don't I don't think we shouldn't be learning social history or human history, but the complete absence of natural history, geology, which again children are very you know in, well in my experience anyway are very intuitively interested in giant lizards that walked around 170 million years ago, or the ice age, the woolly mammoth, and or archaic humans. You know that's stuff that young young kids love to learn about, and for some reason. We don't, as a society, try and satisfy that and say, well, actually, yeah, you know, there's this amazing story of humanity. And what we think of as, quote unquote, human nature, even things like agriculture, cities, writing, that's only in the last 12,000 years. And actually, we have predecessors going back several hundred thousand years. And it's something I'll return to in this conversation. But my worry is that the far right is actually much better at this than progressives. Um, now, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean conservatives when I say the far I mean the far right. Because you were just saying about our ancestors and the thousands of people that go before us. I was reading, um, a, a, it can only be, it's an alt-right text, but it's very influential, so I was reading it. I won't say what it is because I don't, I don't want to promote it, but it's been very influential in the US. And obviously I, I disagree with all of it, but it's, in, it's interesting to get inside the minds of these people. And there was one particular phrase where it said, be proud of who you are. You are embodying the choices and decisions and desires of tens of thousands of people who came before you. And the metaphor they use is there's this huge army, 30, 40,000 strong, and you're the person leading it. And all of their, you know, their genetics, their personal choices, environmental factors, which shaped how they think, what they look like, what, what, they, what tastes they enjoy, all of that is manifest in you. And I thought, wow, that is so powerful. But the left is the left doesn't talk in those terms because I will talk about this in a second because it's effectively bought into the idea of modern liberalism and modern liberalism's relationship to time, which is about social contract theory, Hobbes, Locke. And this is something which isn't in the book. I mean, the book covers a great deal of stuff and it criticizes modernity, but it doesn't actually say, look, in the 17th century, we basically get this new kind of polit political ideology which says everything is about the self-interest of the, the rational self-interest of the individual society is basically them entering into contractual obligations which they can enter and depart whenever they want. Now, clearly, there's there's lots of upsides to that. Liberalism has done lots of good things. It's clearly given a lot of freedom and autonomy to the individual. It's clearly allowed, you know, unprecedented levels of prosperity worldwide, clearly. But I think there are some, some downsides too. And I think one of them is this inability to think in the long term. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Oh, that's a big, lots of big questions there. And I think just let's start with the far right before shifting on to lock and contract theory. Um, as you were speaking there, I was thinking about the way that far right has been so successful at repackaging the history of nationalism, particularly um, the idea that I'm from a great line of descendants of pure white British people or pure white German people or whoever it happens to be. Now, Anybody left, right or centre can manipulate history however they want. You know, that's history sort of always been up for grabs. But I think the right has been particularly good at that um, kind of appropriation of kind of racial purity, um, ideas of colonial idols and that kind of stuff and tried to transfer it to the present. I was reading a survey of far right parties across Europe recently and looking at how many of them have adopted the language of ecology that we need to um, not let the, the immigrants in in order to keep our rivers and mountains pure and beautiful, that kind of idea. And there are struggles within certain far-right groups across Europe around that with the older guard still not wanting to accept that language of ecology because it sounds a bit um, 
perhaps left wing or something like that. But of course, we know that the Nazi party was all into blut und Boden, you know, into blood and soil, uh, into connecting ecology with nation. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And we're going to see more and more of the far right saying, well, the only way we can deal with our ecological, the ecological crisis is by having kind of a benign dictatorship of some kind where we put up the walls and do the things we need to do. When it comes to liberalism and Locke, I absolutely agree. I mean, going back to the 17th, 18th century, the way that freedom was defined around individual private property rights and the self-interested individual, whether you're looking at Locke or, you know, uh, Smith and the Wealth of Nations and, or other writers, and that's locked Western thought in the last 300 years into a presentism, uh, in a sense, and into an individualism as well. And I think one of the tasks of people of the early 21st century, here we are, is to try and, in a way, rescue us, rescue our culture from the individualism we've inherited from those 300 years, but equally to rescue us from the short-termism of it as well. And, you know, that's a large project, as it were. But, you know, the inheritance of, say, Lockean liberalism um, and its manifestation in contemporary capitalist thought is one which is inherently short-termist. Its, its expression, I guess, most clearly is in corporations' obsession with quarterly reporting, mm. right? We've got to report our profits, our market share, our revenue, and so on every quarter, and everything has to be driven towards that or even more short-term towards tomorrow's share price. And, well, where's the long-term vision in that. Of course, you know, former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. But actually, the way that most financing of business and technology goes is that it is caught in short-term financial incentives. It's what do the venture capitalists want? Well, they want 12% return every year. What does the stock market or shareholders want for publicly owned companies? They want the quarterly returns, you know, being up. Um, and so that, that, liberal inheritance has locked our economies into uh, a temporal myopia. Do you think Do you think the answer is policy or do you think it goes deeper than that? So I suppose, you know, you've, you've listed those things. And that's quite a common sort of set of challenges that people even on the centre-left would say, yep, you're right, shareholder capitalism has its problems, has its downsides. We need policy fixes to that. But from what I get in the book and from what you're saying here, I mean, it, it is a lot more profound my personal view is we won't be able to think long term in the way that you're describing so long as those liberal ideas dominate. I mean, I think it's entirely implausible. Now, I'll give you an example. You know, you mentioned Locke and and this idea that the individual can not only consume as many, uh, consume as much as they like, but actually the more they mix their labor with the planet is actually good because it creates more prosperity for everybody and so on, rather than the fact that we live in a world of finite inputs. What's your take on this? Do you think we have to sort of, is this a big, big project about jettisoning some of the the common sense, which really we've inherited over the last 250 years? Absolutely, it's about jettisoning all of that. It's not about adding new adjectives to capitalism, like, you know, compassionate capitalism or... Um, conscious capitalism or green capitalism or sustainable this or whatever. Um, we've got to give up on adjectives. I remember reading, in fact, when I was researching this book, The Good Ancestor, I read this kind of obscure political theory article called Institutions for the Anthropocene by a political theorist called John Dreisek. And it really blew my mind because he said something which is, I guess it sounds kind of obvious, but I found it very profound, um, which was this, that the institutions which dominate society today were such as our representative democracy and consumer capitalism and so on were born in the holocene they were born in the era in which we had a relatively stable earth system in terms of temperature and so on and as you sort of were saying going back to 12,000 years ago it's it's in that period in the last 12,000 years that we've had civilizations develop but now we're in a different era we're in the era where we are the weather makers and the future eaters. You know, we are in the Anthropocene and our institutions weren't developed with that in mind, you know, and the challenges that it faces. So the classic example would be the role of economic growth. 
um, in society. You know, that's an inheritance from the 19th, 19th century economics. One can imagine living in, say, 1850 and thinking, well, okay, um, this economic growth thing and industrialization, that's not too bad. You know, our Earth, our planet could maybe absorb some of the pollution. We can deal with some of the inequalities and so on. It's not a disaster. But today we know differently, right? That kind of model is absolutely unsustainable in the deepest way. So it does raise these fundamental questions of, okay, what are the institutions we need in the Anthropocene rather than the Holocene? You know, what do they look like? What are the underlying values? And it's not a matter, I think, of policy changes. I mean, if I was going to criticize myself, I would say, well, I do personally sometimes advocate certain kinds of policy changes as kind of, let's say, breathing space for political change. So, for example, you know, Wales has a future generations commissioner who doesn't actually have much power, right? But her job is to look at the impact of public policy up to 30 years ahead. Now, I'm an advocate of campaigning for Britain to have uh, a country, the country as a whole, not just Wales, having a future generations commissioner as well. Not quite like the Wales model, one that has citizen assembly input, that has more power and so on. Now, that's a policy change. Yeah. And is it deep and fundamental? No, yeah. but I see it as part of trying to create a new cultural conversation. And the reason I think this is important is partly through personal experience. Um, about 15 years ago, I started getting interested in the topic of empathy, the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, see the world through their eyes. And I wrote a book called Empathy about how empathy could be a force for social and political change, radical change. It's not just a soft, touchy-feely, emotional thing. Anyway, I started giving, I don't know, radio interviews, TV stuff about empathy. Um, and then I started, um, I worked with Oxfam to try and change the British school curriculum, primary school curriculum, so that it had empathy as a subject like geography or history. I really believe that should be taught. And when we tried to change the curriculum, you know, we the drafts, the drafts of the new curriculum working with Oxfam had all this stuff on empathy in it. But then finally, the politicians just ripped it up uh, when the new Tory government came in. And it taught me actually that in a way at that time, the word empathy was a bit weird. You know, it, it people didn't sort of get it, you know, and and there hadn't been enough enough, I think, cultural conversation to enable the conversations we needed or the the movements we needed to evolve to create change. And I think this is partly why I will go around talking about, well, Britain needs a future generations commissioner or let's be good ancestors or time rebels. It's partly trying to change what I think was the ethnosphere. So there's a bios bios biosphere, creates the cultural air we breathe. The, that, sorry, creates the, the air we breathe and the, the ethnosphere creates the cultural air we breathe. It's a sort of the ideas swirling around in society that shape our worldviews, our Weltanschauung. Do you think that um, there's a trade-off there sometimes? So obviously, you've got limited time. I mean, statistically, you've probably got a good chance of what, reaching 1995. You know, I've probably got a good chance of reaching 95, 100. You know, we haven't got forever. And there's only so many activists with limited time, limited resources, limited possibility to influence outcomes and relationships. Do you sometimes feel like the emphasis on policy or big P politics is misplaced? Because again, it feels like something that the far right is doing is what you know what they refer to as metapolitics, which is quite similar to what you're referring to here, which is challenging the ideas, the broader ideas above politics about what is common sense, what is necessary. Just the idea of necessity is such a powerful one. I mean, it's the political concept. You know, is that a gap in the thinking of the left more broadly? And it's sort of we're we're too focused on immediate policy outcomes and like I say, building social movements, all this stuff, which of course I'm I'm totally into. I think we should be doing that. But like you say, the shift is so necessary within the Anthropocene that also it feels sometimes like we're not creating the the art, the fiction, the theatre, the political theory. Like a lot of that is lacking. And like for me, that's the bottom of the house, you know, that you construct the rest of it on. Yeah, ultimately, I do believe that, that the policy world is just a, not a sideshow, but it's not the foundation of change. I mean, I think the most obvious example to look at is the rise of neoliberal ideology coming out of, um, you know, Hayek and others meeting in the 1940s and deciding, okay, the Mont Pelerin Society, we're going to 
embark on a, you know, maybe a half-century program to try and seed neoliberal thought. Now we're going to do it by buying newspapers and founding university chairs and setting up foundations like the Heritage Foundation. And, well, the fruits started to become clear in the 1970s when the Chicago boys started directing the Chilean economy under Pinochet. And then they became even more clear under Thatcher and Reagan and so on. They were playing a pretty long game, you know, and... I think the that's the game I think that the left or progressive left or green left or wherever you're coming from needs to come from with that long game mindset at the front of the of the head but of course the the tension is the sense of urgency around certain kinds of crises so most obviously around okay if we've got a 10 year window to stay below 1.5 degrees of heating and that means massive reductions of carbon emissions well do we have time for a half a century or a century of seeding the idea of being a good ancestor into the primary school curriculums around the world well in a way it's partly about where you're going to put your energy as a person you know um, ultimately you know I personally have chosen to play that long game by being a writer you know um, I don't actually spend a lot of time trying to convince politicians or CEOs of anything you know occasionally I speak to the politicians um, but I'm I'm much more a believer in the power of ideas to change society I think that's part of the change you know that's part of the change of the the habitus or the worldview or whatever you call it I don't know what are your thoughts well I think yeah, I, th I'm, I mean, I'm quite, I, 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 well, look, I agree with all of it. I agree with everything in the book and I agree with everything you're saying. I think, I suppose my criticisms are that I feel like the left on this is just deeply, and there is not a better word, it's quite a horrible word to use, but it is infected with liberalism. It just is utterly infected with liberalism. And I feel like the right is much better on it. And I, th I feel like conservatives, small c conservatives, view society as a living organism, within which they participate that's how that's just how they view social relations and society often not for not for better you know that's how they that's how you legitimize feudalism or the monarchy you're right you reify it as this normal natural thing so i'm not saying it's an unadulterated good but their view of society is this organism developing over time which i agree with and at a certain point socialists lost that understanding of society as an organism within which something something within which you participate and you're shaped by and you shape and again sort of going back to sort of conservative critiques of liberalism i mean there's a guy called patrick Danine. are you familiar with him patrick who dunleavy Danine. Danine, no yeah so he was he, he's a he's an american sort of scholar critic of liberalism political theorist catholic and there's lots of stuff I disagree with him about. And I think if you take lots of his thinking to its logical conclusion, all of a sudden you don't support bodily autonomy, right? And you, you can see why he would oppose Roe versus Wade or something, which I think is completely unacceptable. But I think I think the, the critiques he has of liberalism are that there's th it's threefold. It has a specific relationship to nature. You can do what the hell you like to nature. It has a specific relationship to time. Individuals have no relationship to time. And it has a specific relationship to place. Whereas basically I can leave and go anywhere I like anytime and I don't need to have any ethical or cultural attachment to a specific uh, geographical location. And I think on each of those, he's correct. But again, these are kind of like, these are obsessions. These are obsessions of the modern left. Like I believe in freedom of movement, for instance. I, I believe people, some, even economic migrants, forget refugees. If somebody wants to live here and make more money, good luck to them. My personal experience is that most people don't want to do that. They want where they live to not be subject to deeply unfair global trade relations or war or famine. That's my personal experience as somebody who's half Iranian. That might be atypical. But I, I feel like the left, a lot of the shibboleths of the modern left, I think are the worst parts of liberalism and actually are the parts of liberalism that, that are the most pernicious when it comes to being good ancestors. So what I'm asking you if you want to go studs up in on the left, Roman, basically. Or am I being over overly unfair? Well, actually, you know, as you were talking there, what came to mind is something maybe a bit more left field, which is the failure to... Not your failure, I'm talking about a sort of a, a social, <laughs> cultural failure to embed our politics in human evolution and 
what we know about who we are. Yeah. Well, what do we know about who we are? We we are probably one of the most social mammals there are. You know, as George Monbiot sometimes puts it, we're almost as social as the naked mole rat. Yeah. Mm. And the edifice of liberalism and a lot of let's say center left thought is built on an idea of the individual, uh, often the rational, self-interested individual. But it's so far from who we are. It's so far from why I do stuff for my kids or why people move, you know, open a door somebody for somebody going into a shop mm. or why somebody saves someone who's drowning or, you know, there's a thousand examples which just make you think like, what do you mean we're self-interested individual creatures? Mm. So if you build your political theory on a, I think a different model of human nature, you're going to come out with a very different result. Um, but of course, you know, most people who are working in, I don't know, policy areas or political theory and so on, don't think that much about that kind of evolutionary psychology, for example. Um, and that's something I've had to sort of teach myself. I used to be a political scientist. I used to like teach democratic theory and politics and international relations and all this stuff about 25 years ago. Um, but I don't remember ever knowing anything about human beings. It's crazy, you know? isn't it? Would you ever go back into it? Um, I think I've been out so long, they'd never have me back, probably. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the reason I left was because I was driven insane by the disciplinary boundaries. Um, you know, for example, I used to be interested in, I was getting interested in, in empathy, which I mentioned earlier, and found that, well, I didn't want to just study the politics of empathy, but in anthropology, science fiction, the writing of Ursula Le Guin, I mean, who, whatever, I mean, I wanted to write memoir, and none of that could fit in, with, in within academia. And it seems to me that a lot of the best ideas in all fields are not coming from within universities anymore. You know, they're coming from people who are thinking independently or with others, but outside those institutions, which are just too old fashioned. I mean, if mm. you look at, I don't know, if you study economics at Oxford University, where I studied, you're, they're t learning today exactly the same stuff they studied when I was a student 30 years ago. I mean, they're not learning about ecological economics. You're still shown a supply and demand diagram on a white, background textbook page without having the thing we need, which is a circle around it called the biosphere, right? I mean, Herman Daly and ecological economists were writing about that in the 1970s, and it still isn't in mainstream economics curricula. I mean, it is insane. So no, I'm not going back to universities. <laughs> yeah, there's the idea of, of, of Stuart Brand, who I know gets a bit of a bad rep because, you know, he's a Silicon Valley guy and there's the, you know, the clock of the long now and Bezos is involved and all that. But I, 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 and obviously he set up the foundation for the long now, long before Bezos came along. But I, I, reading some of his stuff sort of from the end of the 90s, early 2000s, I think a lot of it's spot on about how history works, which is kind of Marxist understanding, really, or historical materialist understanding. These, you know, these, this idea of pace layers. And at the bottom is the pace layer of nature. And if something goes wrong with nature, the, the whole thing is, you know, screwed which seems quite obvious. And again, you, you, you have a, uh, an image in the book about, you know, civilizations and how long they last. And I mean, all the great civilizations have really, from what we know, come apart as a result of pandemics or, or climate change. You know, people don't really talk about it much, but, you know, the Roman Empire after the first century AD, when, of course, it hits its apogee, has these two ginormous plagues, the Antonine Plague and the Justinian Plague, which basically do for it. Um, that's not in Edward Gibbons, you know. That's quite a modern understanding of, of of what's of what's going on. But he says, you know, you've got the pace layer of nature, and then of course you've got governance, you've got infrastructure, um, you've got um, ideas, and then right at the top, you know, you've got fashions, which is the sort of daily changing nature of things, and 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 they're and they're ephemeral by literally by virtue of what they're seeking to be. Uh, which isn't the case, for instance, with infrastructure. Infrastructure doesn't seek to be short-term by virtue of what it is. And and I feel like that's a really good account of how the world changes. And like you say, you see it in science fiction. You see it a little bit in business. You see it amongst the kind of, you know, more thoughtful, independent thinkers, which maybe striate culture and business. You see it in journalism. You know, you might read an article about it in The New Yorker or something. 
or the Atlantic. But it's not in the academy. It's not, it's not the stuff we're teaching kids. And I say this as somebody who did political science, master's, PhD, not long ago. And it's people, I'll be frank, it's quite boring people obsessed with quantitative data and charts about the most boring stuff that nobody cares about. And there are people obsessing over, oh, well, if a judge is like this, what kind of outcomes do we get on the European Supreme Court? And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, you're a smart person. In a, in a rational society, you wouldn't be wasting everyone's time like this. Like, is it really that important? And I know that sounds kind of mean, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of political science. Yeah, I mean, I think Stuart Brand's a kind of interesting figure. I mean, I've had some interactions with him because I'm actually a, a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, which he co-founded with Brian Eno and others. And, you know, there's a lot of his stuff I just don't agree with, you know, and he knows that. But I, I, I feel someone like him, and I think this is quite important. Um, I think as a person, he was a bit disillusioned by his political activism in the 60s and early 70s, the sense that... Um, politics can't solve problems, I think is the conclusion he came to, and that therefore we have to just, we shift to technology. Um, and that's been his his emphasis as a kind of eco-modernist. But I think something is lost there, which is an engagement with political institutions and social movements and that kind of thing. And I think there is something in the Silicon Valley libertarian um, worldview, which is too apolitical. And I think Stuart Brand is too apolitical. Um, and it was kind of interesting seeing how he responded to something like COVID, mm. kind of recognizing the need for a state response, right? That markets and technology by themselves were not going to deal with this issue. We needed governments to put massive investment into public health care or to subsidize people's wages and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I suppose the worry with everything we've already talked about is if you sort of telescope out too much, you know, you start talking about we've got archaic forms of humans that have just been discovered 100,000 years ago. They were using drilling techniques. And, you know, actually this changes everything about uh, how we understand our species and, you know, climate events did this or that or, you know, the high tight civilization that was about climate change. All fascinating. But, you know, the left also does need to talk about, like you say, workers' rights, £15 minimum wage, worker organising, uh, you know, ethical supply chains in the here and now. And I agree with you. The important thing is to do is to do both. And I suppose that's true, really. An obsession like Stuart Brand does have with this stuff. I mean, it, I suppose it doesn't necessarily take you towards somebody like Bezos because ultimately, you know, if you're thinking in the span of 10,000 years, then, well, okay, some work is being exploited down the road, but that doesn't really matter so much in the grand scheme of things. I mean... Well, of course, well, you know, no specific individual does, of course not. But that's that's not really a politics of solidarity. And I think what's really vital here is that there's a lot of people trying to talk on this 10,000 year kind of scale, long now foundation, people interested in existential risk and so on. And I like that on some level, right? It's the opposite of short termism. It's what Brian Eno called talking about the long now rather than the short now. But the, I think the reality is that if you say to somebody we should care about people living 10,000 years in the future, most people will just sort of blink and just say, like, what are you talking about? I've got shit going on in my life right now. And what I try to do in my book, The Good Answers, actually, is try and offer a little bit of a bridge there, which is to recognize that, look, okay, some people can be, think about, can read a sci-fi story set in 10,000 years, and that really motivates them to do something for future generations but most people will not be motivated by that but people will be motivated to care about the future if you connect it to their own lives and when you think about it of course human beings are multi-generational creatures in an anthropological sense most of us will know our parents and maybe grandparents if we have children we know our children we might know grandchildren now if you think of the date your grandmother was born and the day your date your grandchild might die well there's a time span there of maybe two or three hundred years there we are, kind of in a visceral, emotional sense, Im embedded in the long term. And I think that kind of recognition can shift us as people, um, more so, I think, even than thinking on a 10,000-year scale. If I think about my daughter, now 13, she could be alive in the year 2100, right? That future is not science fiction. It's an intimate family fact. And I think politically, what's interesting there is that if I care about her life, I need to care about all life because she is not an individual just floating in space. She is part of a web of human relationships, but 
part of the web of the living world, the air she breathes, the water she drinks. So yeah, if I care about her well-being, I need to extend my solidarity through time to something broader, you know, future generations. And I think the idea of solidarity has been too much caught in the present tense. It needs to be stretched through time towards intergenerational solidarity. Are you familiar with Scipio's dream? No, tell me that. This is a, a short fragment in, um, in a book by Kikiro. And it's basically a dream. I think it's the father or the son of Scipio Africanus. I can't remember. It's either his son and then Scipio Africanus, this general comes to him or anyway. And it's basically, a, it's a cosmology. It's, it's, a, it's a form of Republican cosmology. So it's basically saying Roman Republican theory we should we should serve the public interest and and basically you know exercise obviously this is a slave society so take it all with a pinch of salt and what they view as a citizen is obviously contingent it's men roman men but we have the ethical commitments to you know our family and our relatives and then to our our body politic and it goes out and out until it's the whole of humanity which obviously at the time is an extraordinary idea and this idea of concentric circles uh, you know we 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 i think most people would, would understand that it would be legible to them what you're adding to that is, of course, like you say, future generations. And that presently, we, we literally discount future generations as being less valuable than our own. You are correct. There's clearly a sweet spot where you can say, well, your grandma was born at this date, your grandchildren will die at this date. Like my grandmother was born 1926. I mean, I find this a really useful thought exercise, actually, where she was born in 1926. Look at all the stuff that she's seen politically, technologically. She's 96 now. And then I've got a niece who's five. Let's say she lives as long as my grandmother. She'll be dying in the horrible thing to say, but it's a long way off. You know, twenty-two ten or something. If the if the if the if basically trends since the mid nineteenth century continue, she's got an even's chance of living to one hundred and four. So, what will she have seen in her life if she lives as long as my grandmother? And that's so powerful. And I think again, like your book, it's such an important remedy to the world that we're surrounded by with 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 social media, but also just the presumptions of politics, right? It's like, clearly the world is going to look massively different. And there's, um, this is even talked about, I think, in science fiction, or maybe it's actually just in technology with Amara's law. You know, we we underestimate um, change in the long term and we overestimate change in the short term. And because something doesn't, because, you know, the internet didn't make the world like Star Trek in the space of 15 years, people think, well, technology doesn't change anything. Actually, you know, it, it really does. You just have to stick around and wait for it. You know, look at the jet engine, look at the steam engine. And the same will apply eventually to, you know, uh, gene sequencing or um, gene editing or, you know, cellular agriculture. These will be just as disruptive. We just, you know, we have to wait for it. Uh, so I, I, I think that's fair about the couple of hundred years thing. Is there, Are there any sort of specific, again, thought experiments which are useful to people when you're trying to persuade them or, you know, get them to embrace longer term thinking? Well, actually, when I say I'm talking to politicians sometimes in different countries, wherever, I sometimes do get them in a way to do a thought experiment slightly along the lines we've already spoken. I get them to close their eyes and imagine a young person in their life who they really care about, maybe a child, grandchild, nephew, niece. And then I get them to imagine that child 30 years in the future and to think about their life and their joys or their suffering. Then I get to them to imagine that child on their 90th birthday party, surrounded by family and friends and loved ones and neighbors and old work colleagues. And I ask them to look out the window and think about what kind of world they see out there. And then I invite them back into the room and to imagine that this 90 year old is about to give a birthday speech, but they then instead stand up and they suddenly see a photograph of you, their departed ancestor, their dead ancestor over on the mantelpiece. And they decide to tell the gathered room about something that you did for their, their generation, something you did to be a good ancestor. And I leave these politicians, uh, or whoever I'm talking to, with that thought experiment. And wherever they're, whether they're left, right, center, whoever they are, you know, and almost all of them always have some kind of quite strong response to it. I think that's really interesting. Of course, people have different ways about wanting to, how they're going to get to the future that they want, you know, depending on their political stripes. And some people look out the window and see utopia and some people see a world on fire, right? But that's fine. The point I think is the thought experiment. And I think just for me as an individual, you know, I I like thinking about the past. I think of my, my grandmother um, 
who was born in, I think, 1902. And, you know, I think it, I, I have a photo of her, my screensaver. And I think about how she would judge me. I mean, in the 1930s, she was a nudist communist vegetarian, member of the Australian Communist Party. And she was a, she was a radical, like all her friends and family and people in my family. And I, I, I think about her judging me today. But I also like to think about my unborn grandchildren judging me today, uh, being in a kind of a, a pincer movement of time. That idea of uh, Scipio's dream also reminds me of the Confucian idea of benevolence or what's called ren, R-E-N, which is the idea that morality exists in sort of concentric circles around the individual, then the family and the village and so on. And again, those ideas are quite limited in terms of time. And I recently had um, a visitor to my home was a Japanese Buddhist monk called Shokai Matsumoto. He's a sort of well-known monk in Japan. Um, he's a writer. He has a digital temple. He's quite a cool and interesting monk. Um, but he was the translator of the good ancestor into Japanese. And I asked him, I said, why, Shokai, you know, you're a Buddhist monk. Why are you translating this book about long-term thinking into Japanese when surely Japan as a country has a history of sort of ancestral worship and intergenerational connection and that Buddhism itself uh, has a lot of that in it or some sense of transcending time being in the now. And he said something really interesting. He said, well, to be honest, we think in Japanese Buddhism and Japanese culture quite a lot about connection with past ancestors, but not about our future descendants, that our morality isn't organized really around that kind of stretching your ethical sphere forward in time. And that's how, in his words, he wants to change Japanese Buddhism. I mean, that's his project. But I thought that was really fascinating about the way that different cultures think about future generations in different ways and what we can learn from them. You talk in the book about legacy mindset, which uh, when I sort of read about that towards the beginning of the book, I thought, oh, now I understand why it's at TED. You know, that's where I found, that's where I picked the book up. Uh, because you've got all these sort of very wealthy people, very successful people, actually increasingly at younger ages now, particularly with the digital economy, who maybe at 40, 45, 50, have done everything they want to do, and they are thinking about you know the world after them. I mean, the paradigmatic example here is Bill Gates. Um, but I wonder, you know, they have all of this money, and do they think about legacy? And I mean, it's, it's sort of, you, you've, you've got hands-on experience with this. You've talked to many people about this. Because I remember a conversation I was having with an Iranian guy when I was there, a very successful Iranian uh, Iranian-American guy, and he said, what I will never understand is Mark Zuckerberg spends $25 million a year on personal security. $25 million. You know, he's got all that money. Why doesn't he just give half of it away to his local community, look after people, just just give it away? You know, he could, or Elon Musk, you know, he was making, making, I think Elon Musk was making something like at one point, I can't even remember. I think it was like $18 million an hour at some point a couple of years ago. Um, of course, that's equity increases in his business. But, you know, still, okay. Let's say it's $5 million an hour if you want to make it liquid really quickly. They're making money much more quickly than they can spend it. And yet they don't seem that interested in, in how people will remember them. Now, I know Musk talks about spacefaring, civilization, or so on. So maybe he's not the best example. But there are many, 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 many people with a great deal of money who, who don't seem that interested in how they'll be remembered. And that does seem quite new. You know, I, I feel like even in the 19th century, we've been criticising liberalism and whatnot, but even the sort of great um, philanthropists, and it can be overstated how, how philanthropic they were, but it was a big cultural thing, not just in the US, but, you know, in the UK as well. If they didn't think the world was going to remember them as changing things for the better, they would have failed. And I don't feel like that's on, you know, Rupert Murdoch's bucket list, right? When he dies, he's 90. I, you know, I, 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 I don't wish him dead or anything, you know. Um, but when he dies, clearly he's going to not be remembered particularly well. You know, he'll be, he'll be one of the people that when they say, well, why did the Anglophone countries fail on climate change? Rupert Murdoch will be top of the list with a bunch of politicians. Is that a recent shift? Do, do you think people in the last sort of 50, 100 years have cared less about this? That's really interesting. And to be honest, I haven't thought about it like that. I think it's a really brilliant thought and worth pursuing. Um, you know, the way I think about this is, you know, there's a an idea in that emerged in social psychology in the 1950s, which is the concept of generativity. And that idea is the idea that most human beings, when they reach middle age, 
maybe between 30 and 50, start thinking about their deaths and how they're going to be remembered by the future in some sense. Um, and in that sense, death is good because it reminds us of our mortality and gets us to think about how we'll be remembered. And the problem, though, is that we there are different ways of leaving a legacy um, or different forms of it. It's a kind of a slippery thing. So you could be like Alexander the Great wanting to be remembered for your great personal deeds and have statues of yourself all over your empire, just like Russian oligarchs or any oligarch wants a, uh, a football stadium or the wing of a, an art gallery named after them. Or most of us, when we think about legacies, we're thinking about family wanting to pass something on to our children, whether it is wealth or a um, culture or language or religion or something. But of course, what I'm trying to argue in this book is that we need to have a more transcendent sense of legacy, which is about caring for the universal strangers of the future. In the same way that, you know, after the Second World War in Britain, there was this idea that the health service was there for the universal stranger, right? The people you would never know, but who should be benefiting from this public health service. Well, what about the universal strangers of the future is the way I think about it. But the idea that maybe even today's billionaires don't even want to be like Alexander the Great, let alone care about the universal strangers of the future. They don't even want to leave a monument to themselves is a really fascinating one. Now, I think that's a hypothesis worth investigating. It might be worth investigating whether, say, because billionaires, people are becoming rich younger, that those younger people like Elon Musk maybe haven't yet reached that point of generativity. They, they don't really feel like they're going to die. Right? They feel immortal. So they don't have to think about their legacies. Maybe some of them actually are thinking about their legacies, but it's just, it's so narrow that Rupert you know, Murdoch, whoever just wants to leave things just for his kids or whatever, nothing outside that. They don't want to be like, I don't know, Andre Agassi or, or someone who will set up and fund schools, you know, around where he lived and try and do something a bit bigger than himself. Um, but so I don't actually have an answer to that. And I think it's, it's, that's a really interesting thing to think about whether the way, in a way, what it's saying is that the way we think about death is ch changed in the last half century or century, that our relationship with it is changing. Um, that, that point of death, I find really, really interesting. Modern civilization, we're, we're really insulated from death. We don't see how our food is produced. And there was a great statistic I read the other day. A woman today is more likely to have a, a grandparent who is alive than a woman did in 1800 to have their own mother alive. So that's a woman at 20 is more likely to have a grandparent who's alive than a woman at 20 having a, a living parent 220 years ago. So this acquaintance with death has clearly changed and also with caring responsibilities, for instance, you know, the average person I think needs care is about 65 and the average person who's giving care is actually in their early 60s. There are many exceptions, but generally speaking, people aren't acquainted with that vulnerability of old age and potential death until actually, like you say, they're on the cusp of it themselves. And again, that's quite recent. And I think that's a really interesting suggestion. Of course, the idea of mass war, conscription in the last 60, 70 years, again, that's that's kind of disappeared in, in the West anyway. And I, I do think you're right. It's, it's probably created a perverted sense of of personal mission and legacy because death is just so invisible in our cultures. It's strange when I speak to people in their sort of 50s, 60s, I think the sort of boomer generation, and that's a derogatory term, I don't mean it as such, they have a different relationship to death than those I meet who are older. I mean, maybe it sounds kind of strange, but there is there was clearly a cultural impulse in the 60s, 70s. I think, I think people thought they were going to live forever. And that was quite new because I guess they were such a historically fortunate generation and they intuitively grasped that. Do you think there's something to that? Absolutely. I mean, the in a way, death was destroyed by 20th century consumerism in some sense. The advertising industry telling us that we were forever young. Also, the medicalization society putting old people into care homes out of sight and out of mind. I mean, how many people now have seen a dead body, people who live in the global north? Um my kids haven't seen a dead body. Uh, I've only seen a handful of dead bodies. And so we've become distanced from death. And the socio-political consequences of that are potentially very large, as we're starting to realize through what we're talking about here. And there's a real question about how we reacquaint ourselves with death. You know, in the Renaissance, um, I would have had a skull on my desk 
or a skull brooch ring on my finger to remind me that death could take me at any moment. You know, a memento mori. Um, this is the dance macabre, the grim reaper on the walls of churches who would take you whether you were a pope or a peasant. Um, where is the grim reaper now? And in a sense, the, you know, the idea that my brain could be frozen and put in a warehouse in Arizona for $80,000 <laughs> and maybe I'll come back in a few centuries, that's all part of this same cultural shift, you know, not wanting to embrace the reality of our mortality and that we are food for worms in the end, as uh, Mr. Keating says in Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Um, but I think that the, the problem, though, I would say the sociopolitical problem is that that we might then, if we reacquaint ourselves with death, we could do it in a very individualistic way, a carpe diem, a seize the day way, um, which is all about bungee jumping and me having a good time while, while I'm still here. But I think we need to shift from carpe diem to the plural carpamos diem, which is let's seize the day together, that we need to recognize our mortality, but the seizing that we need to do has to be much more collective, given the kind of challenge that, is, that we face, ecological, technological, and others. So, yeah, let's carpamos diem, not carpe diem. Uh, final question. Are there any, are there any civilizations today which you think are good at being good ancestors, or at least they're less bad at it than we are in the West? That's a fascinating question. I think the easy answer is to pinpoint a particular indigenous culture um, which has retained traditions of ecological stewardship and ideas of seventh generation decision making found still amongst Iroquois people and so on. But the problem there is thinking, well, how does how do their daily practices relate to my life if I live in Mumbai or Miami um, or Dubai or something like that? Um, so then where do we look for the models? You know, do we go to Kerala and look at the long-term investment they do there in healthcare and, and, and public health? Or actually, do we go for pockets? Um, I'm quite inspired by cities rather than, let's say, nations as being the locus of time rebellion, of taking responsibility for future generations. So going back to Japan, you know, there's a movement there called Future Design, which is like a citizens' assembly kind of movement, grassroots, where they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live, and they typically divide them into two groups. Half are told they're residents of the present day. The other half are given these like ceremonial kimonos to wear, almost like theatre, and told to imagine themselves as residents from 2060. Well, it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative plans for their towns and cities, whether it's long-term investment in uh, healthcare or dealing with the climate crisis. And this future design movement is now being used in city planning in big cities like Kyoto. And I think, okay, there are some good ancestors there. There's something kind of culturally and politically interesting going on. Let's try and use that model. And at least if we can't reinvent the nation state, let us reinvent the city. And cities historically are important for two reasons. One, they almost never die. So Istanbul has survived for thousands of years while empires and nations have risen and fallen about, uh, around it. And also cities tend to be pretty good at responding to the challenges faced by their citizens. They've been good at doing putting in the sewers in 19th century France or, or um, London or the, the grid plans, which were parts of cities in ancient Greece. There's a potential for long-term vision there because it's, I think, you know, for, for corruption as well in cities. But let's try and at least work with, at the city level, I think there's a lot of potential and energy there. Roman, so much food for thought. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege and it's got my brain buzzing. Thanks very much, Aaron. In the 1970s, the provisional IRA was in the early days of its armed campaign to end British rule on the island of Ireland. In the United States, a small group of activists began organizing on their behalf. They called themselves the Irish Northern Aid Committee, NORAID, and they were looking for a fight. War is always violence, and if that's the only way, and history tells us it's the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. My name is Nate Levy, and I'm the host of Foreign Agent, a podcast about the connection between ordinary Irish Americans and a revolutionary socialist guerrilla group. 
It was a tenuous and unlikely coalition, but it shaped the troubles in Northern Ireland and helped to mold contemporary Irish-American identity. This is a story that travels back and forth across the Atlantic, over three decades of conflict. And in six episodes, Foreign Agent will explore how regular Americans became militant advocates for the cause of Irish freedom. Whether they have dust on their knees from coming from mass or not, they're trying to acquire Uzi machine guns and surface-to-air missiles to shoot down helicopters. We'll hear directly from some of the people who provided military and financial support to the Irish Republican Army. We'll follow the guns and the money from South Boston and the Bronx. And we'll also meet people who wrote letters, walked the picket lines, and built Irish Northern Aid into a nationwide organization. Somebody would drive a flatbed truck down into Manhattan. We would be announcing the demonstration in and out through the Bronx before coming down to outside the British consulate. We had thousands of people out of those demonstrations. And we'll see that at every step of the way, the U.S. government tried to shut them down. We will do everything we possibly can to prevent American citizens' assistance to the terrorists in Ireland. We'll meet the teetotaler and life insurance actuary who was the public face of Irish Northern Aid. We'll spend time with the communist armored truck driver who ran thousands of guns out of his small apartment in Brooklyn. And we'll tell the wild court case that made them into heroes of the Irish Republican movement. An eight-week-long gun smuggling trial in New York's Brooklyn federal court went to the jury today. The question to be answered, were the defendants working for the IRA or the CIA? It is not often that one has the opportunity to kick the shit out of the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, MI5, and MI6, all at one time. We had it, and we did it. Irish Northern Aid fused support for an anti-colonial struggle with white American identity politics. And throughout it all, they kept a coalition of left and right-wing tendencies together by orienting their work around the principle of armed struggle. They took militant Irish nationalism from the bars in the Bronx into the highest reaches of the American state. And for almost three decades, Norid went punch for punch with the British, Irish, and U.S. governments. And they left their mark on the peace agreement that ended the war. Irish America changed U.S. foreign policy. Irish America changed British policy. This is the story of the Troubles, as seen through American eyes. Foreign agent from Navarra Media is available wherever you get your podcasts.